0: Have you ever been disoriented? You know that feeling, right? Maybe when you're in an unfamiliar place or something, or you're driving around and you've taken a wrong turn, you're not sure which way to turn next or where to go because you're just kind of disoriented. Maybe you're hiking a trail or something, and there's this thick fog that comes in, or you're in a dark room, or you just kind of get spinned around. You're you're just a little disoriented. We've all kind of felt that feeling. But you know what? It's, It's more than just being lost, right? Sometimes life just feels disorienting because of the circumstances that we find ourselves and we live really in the present circumstances of life. And when our present circumstances don't make sense, well then life starts to feel as if it's spinning out of control, as if everything's just a little bit disorienting because we can't make sense of things. Life just gets confusing. You know, God never has that problem. You know, He's never disoriented. Things never start spinning. Things are never confusing. Things never catch him by surprise because he doesn't live in the present circumstance. He lives outside of time and space. God has no past, present, future. He's simply eternal. Theologians call this the transcendence of God. I mean, we kind of sung about it this morning when we sung that, hey, before you even spoke creation into existence, you knew our names. Because where we see life is almost like a series of events, and you know, you're watching a movie or something, and there's this scene, and there's this scene, and there's this scene, and we kind of see our lives unfold that way. God doesn't see it. He sees it all at once. And so as we're making our way through the book of Esther, and we hear the story of Queen Esther, we reach a point in the book, really, where the fog begins to lift, and we can see God's invisible hand of providence, how he was at work, all the time. Whereas before, it was like, God, where are you? You seem silent. You seem distant. And even now, when God's name is not specifically mentioned, you begin to see his hand at work. It begins to make sense for us. Sometimes life works that way for us as well. Let's go ahead. We'll dive into Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Esther 7, 1 through 10. Let's check it out. Right. So the king and Haman went to went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then king Ahazerah said to queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Queen Esther was. And the king said, will he assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So we enter. The scene here of Queen Esther, and it's another party, right? I mean, if you follow through it with us, the story of Queen Esther, you know these people love to party, right? It almost seems like it's banquet after banquet after banquet, party after party after party. And so Queen Esther, he, she had asked for the first party to be thrown, and there, King Xerxes, he said, okay, what do you want? Twice he asked her, what do you want? Up to half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. What would you like? And at that time queen esther didn't respond you know she just stayed silent she just simply asked for another banquet but she stayed silent you know there's there's something there she seemed like as if she had the sensitivity to the moment to know okay now's not the time to proceed Now's not the time to make this request now's the time just to be quiet and it does bring out this point for us do we have the sensitivity to know when to wait and when to be bold when to march ahead and just boldly proclaim the truth of Jesus, and when to maybe let our actions speak a little bit louder than our words. Do we have that sensitivity when we're dealing with people, when we're navigating circumstances and things like that? Nobody gets it right all the time, right? I mean, there's always times where we put our foot in our mouth and we say something when really we should have just kept quiet. Uh, When we all have moments where we kept quiet and we look back on it and we're like, I really should have spoken up, right? We but we learn the sensitivity of the moment. It's just this emotional awareness, and it seems as if Esther has that. And so she asked for a second party. She knew the time wasn't quite right, and so here's the second party. And it's on the second day of the second party, after they've been feasting, and they've been drinking. And these people drink a lot, you know. And listen, I've never been drunk in my life. I don't know what that feels like. But I imagine that no one is ever smarter when they're drunk, okay? Uh, I don't think, like, you drink a whole lot and then all of a sudden, oh, man, now I make really great decisions. I've I've never heard that testimony. Uh, No, we know that's wrong, right? Sinful behavior is the wrong thing, but this is what they're doing. They're drinking a lot, and it's at this time that now the, the king asks Esther again, hey, what would you like? Up to half my kingdom. I'll give it to you. And this time, Esther makes her request. This time, she's bold. And, but notice, first of all, how respectful she is when she makes this request. You know, she doesn't just launch right in, here's what I want, king. No, she's very, very respectful in how she answers the king. And I think what she's doing here is she's kind of mitigating the opportunity for King Xerxes really to become frustrated with her if she appears disrespectful. You know, I mean, we know what happens when people appear disrespectful to King Xerxes, right? We know what happened with Vashti, right? I mean, she's out of there. She's banished. She seems like she's disrespecting him. She's out of here. So Esther, she's very respectful in how she makes her request. Oh, if I have, if I found favor in your side, O king, if it pleases the king. And you imagine, right? I mean, if you're King Xerxes and you're hearing Queen Esther kind of be so respectful and so polite and so nice that he's probably thinking, oh man, she's buttering me up. This is the second party. We've had all these feasting, and now listen to her, how she's just being so nice. She's buttering me up. Here it comes. Here comes the request. She's going to want some really expensive jewelry. she want to go on some kind of lavish vacation or something. This is, this is going to be big. What is it? What is it? And then she makes her request. i just like not to be murdered. You know? If I could just live, that'd be, that'd be pretty good. Uh, yeah. She goes on from there. It says, not just me, though, but all of my people. And I I just like for us to live and she goes on from that even and she says something really just incredible when you think about it she says listen my people we've we've been sold out to be uh destroyed to be killed to be annihilated she says it three times you know maybe because he's drunk and she just wants to make sure he's getting it hey we're sold out to be destroyed to be killed annihilated you understand what's happening to us and then she says listen if we were just sold out to be slaves I would have kept my mouth shut. I wouldn't have even said anything if we were to be sold into slavery uh, because, you know, if that would have affected your kingdom or something, I wouldn't want to cause any harm. Now, it sounds overly dramatic to me. Like, well, you would, I think you would speak up on that. But no, no, hey, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have spoken up for that. But this is even more of a grave situation than that, because we're talking about the extermination of a people group. This is very serious business now. It also gives you a little clue into their marriage, right? Okay, I'll speak about this, but I won't speak about that. It's almost like I'm not going to come to you with anything except like the worst of all circumstances possible. So you get a little insight into the marriage that King Xerxes and Esther have. We've already seen it. It's not much of a marriage. It's no marriage that anybody would want. But this is what she's saying. I think also in this, though, in this request, you get a little bit of insight and a little bit of wisdom in how to deal with... Uh, authority and people over over you and in charge of you, right? Like, hey, I don't want to come and burden you with every last detail of every little thing that's going on. Why? Because that's overwhelming. You might think of me as incompetent. Uh, you know that I need your approval or every, for everything. No, no, I'm bringing to you what's really important. Here. And so, I think there's some wisdom here in how we in how we deal with authority. But nevertheless, uh, the idea here is that Esther is intervening on behalf of her people. And as she does, you can almost feel the weight of the crown, can't you? Because you've seen how it's taken her a little bit of time to get here. This is the second party. Before that, I mean, she's asking, hey, Mordecai, can you ask all of the Jews just to be fasting for me? And, and, and so you can feel the weight of it here. Now here's the second day. Of the second party and here she is asking in such a respectful way such a nice way a polite way you can feel that there's a little bit of fear here but beyond fear there's also great courage and i think incredible faith that she's going and and she's making this request primarily on behalf of others she might have started with herself but she's not really doing this for herself this is an appeal to the king she's doing this on behalf her people, the Jewish people primarily. And listen, she has this opportunity to live and to serve, to love others, and we all have our opportunities to live, uh, to to love, to encourage, to challenge others. But if we're self-consumed, always focused on our own interests, sometimes we miss the needs of others. The hurts, the pains, the opportunities, all that to be able to serve and to come alongside and really be there for people. I think Esther here is a marvelous example of the grace of God. She hasn't always been. She she hasn't always lived that way, but she is now, and she's interceding on behalf of others, and it's a great uh, example for us. Now, the king hears all this, okay? Esther's people are gonna be destroyed, killed, annihilated, and he's angry. He's upset, and because, hey, an assault on the queen... Is an assault on the king you know if you come up against the crown uh you know it's his kingdom it's his kingship it's not just an attack on her it's also an attack on him because hey if you would plot against the queen well then you would plot against the king so is he acting with chivalry sure but it's more than that. He's also protecting his own dignity and his own image. His kingdom is his pride, the strength and power of all of this. But nevertheless, he wants to know, okay, Esther, who's responsible for this? Like, why is this happening? And Esther says, a foe, an enemy, the wicked Haman. You see, again, you have three times, right? It was like three words to describe what was happening to the Jewish people. We're going to be destroyed killed annihilated and now now again she's using three words to point the finger at haman a foe an enemy the wicked haman and haman at that moment he must have been shocked you know what i mean i mean he's terrified he's scared he knows that okay this is all but at the same time he must have been shocked like well, i had no idea she was a jew I might have done things a little different here. Her name's Esther. That's not a Jewish name. He had no idea about her name Hadassah, right? Like I've known the king for all this time. She's been married for all these years. She's a Jew. The king might not have even known she was a Jew, really. I mean, he, he probably thought she was Persian the, the whole time as well. And so this is all coming as a shock. And we look at that, and it's almost like we're scratching our heads, like, how can you be married and not know the faith of your spouse? right? It it sounds unbelievable to us almost. But, you know, I think we can be a lot more like the household of Xerxes than we think. Because sometimes, you know, I think days, weeks, months, maybe even years can come by, go by, where we're not really having gospel conversations in our homes. And I don't just mean church conversations, right? Like, hey, we got to go to church. Listen, we are the church, right? We don't simply go to church, right? So right now, hey, we're the church gathered. In half an hour an hour from now, we'll be the church scattered. And and so you you recognize the only people who actually go to church are non-believers, right? If you are the church, you don't really go. I mean, it's who you are. The only people who go to church are non-believers. But sometimes that's how we talk as if we're unbelievers who go to church. And so we need to have gospel conversations in our homes. Conversations that talk about who God is, what he has done, therefore who we are and what we are to do. Those are the conversations that must mark our homes. Because if, if it's not happening, we can be a whole lot more like the household of Xerxes than we'd like to think. And so we must have gospel conversations, not simply church conversations, gospel conversations in our homes. And this is incredible courage on behalf of Esther, right? The the king doesn't know, most likely. Haman definitely doesn't know anything about her background, her Jewish faith, and what she's doing now is she's saying, hey, the death warrant that is signed for the Jewish people, go ahead and put my name on it, right? If you don't already know, my name's on it too, and I deserve to die as well right with my people if this order and this edict is carried out. So she's identifying herself with God's people, and that becomes a great question for us is, have we done that? Right? Uh, wherever it is that you live, work, study, and play, are you known as a Christian, as part of God's family? There is this nonsense out there that says that the only thing you really need is a personal relationship with Jesus. Listen, I've, re- I've read the Bible through like several times, and I never really see that. I, I see that you need a relationship with Jesus that is personal, yes, but never solely personal, right? Because you're adopted into a family, into the family of God. And so when you read the New Testament, what do you read? Well, it's just littered with, like, one another's. And how do you treat brothers and sisters in the family? How, How do we relate to each other? How do we love one another well? And then when I read about how we treat outsiders, it's never, like, secret agent people who just, okay, you know, I have this personal relationship. I can keep that quiet. No, no, no. I read that we're sent as ambassadors under the banner of Christ. You know, one thing about an ambassador is you always know who sent him. It's never like, oh, you're an ambassador. I never would have guessed. Right. That never happens. You always know, okay, here's an ambassador of the United States to France or wherever. Like, okay, this is who they're sent on behalf of. And you know that. And this is who we are. We're sent as ambassadors under the banner of Christ. is, is a relationship with Jesus personal? Yes, absolutely. But it's never solely personal because it affects every other relationship that we have. And it's always public. And so here Esther is identifying herself with God's people, really for the first time, publicly identifying herself with the family of God. Now, she could have continued to try to keep her relationship quiet, you know, and just say, hey, you know, this death sentence is going to be carried out, but maybe I can just escape and, you know, no one will know. I mean, Mordecai had told her, hey, don't think that's going to happen. Like, it'll, they'll find you out, you know, it'll come to you too. But she could have thought, I don't know, maybe Mordecai doesn't know. Maybe I can keep this thing quiet. Maybe it will go better for me or I can live a little longer if I don't say anything. She could have thought that. But what she does is act in a noble way, in a brave way, and in a godly way, by identifying herself with the people of God. Now, as you go through the story of Esther, especially in Esther chapter 6 last week, you see just the invisible hand of God's providence at work in a number of different ways that maybe the world could look at and say coincidence, and we look at it and say, well, there's no way that's a coincidence, right? That's the hand of God. Because you see the king right before Haman's going to go to him and ask for Mordecai to be executed on the gallows. The king has this sleepless night. He can't sleep. And then what happens? He says, hey, I want the chronicles read to me about my kingdom. And then as they open up the chronicles to read to him, perhaps to put him to sleep, I don't know, uh, what, what section is read? Well, it just happens to be the section about Mordecai who uncovers the assassination plot and spares the life of the king. And then the king, he needs an advisor for what to do for this man, how to honor him, and who happens to be the advisor in the court that day, Haman. Like, you could look at it and say it's all coincidence, but we look at it as believers. Oh, no, 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 that's the invisible hand of God's uh, providence because he's in control. He's in charge. He's working it all out. He's sovereign. What I want you to see in chapter 7 is that God's sovereignty, his providence... It works hand-in-hand with our obedience. Because Esther, at the same time, is acting with incredible faith here and with obedience. Because she has made this dangerous request in approaching the king when she's uninvited. She's identifying herself, not as Persian, but as Jewish. Now, can God work in spite of us? Oh, absolutely. He does all the time. But what you see throughout the course of Scripture is that God loves to work in conjunction with His people, and when that happens, when you have God's faithfulness and the conjunction in conjunction with the obedience of His people, well, then we, we see incredible things take place. It's not because of our obedience, mind you. It's always because of His sovereignty, but it's in conjunction with His sovereignty when we act obediently that we see, hey, this is the good that God has prepared for me. And now I get to live it. Now I get to experience it. And it's the exciting life that he calls us to. And so Esther, living this exciting life in conjunction with God's sovereignty, she risks her life for the Jewish people. Now, at Central, we really emphasize just an outward orientation towards life. Right? We, we talk all the time about making disciples and wherever it is that we live, work, study, and play, and, and who, who are we pouring into and investing in. We, we spend a lot of time in our community over at City Park and building relationships there. We welcome people into our campus every day of the week, uh, doing a variety of different things because we want to have this outward orientation in how we live in making disciples. But understand this, what I don't want to get lost in all of that is that the primary focus is still to love the people of God and love the family of God. I want to just, just to illustrate this for you, if I can give you an illustration. If your neighbors are, you really want to make an impact on your neighbors, right? Hey, I really want to love them. I want, to, I want, I want them to love Jesus. I'm really gonna, really gonna try to just serve them well. And so you spend all your time focusing on your neighbors, right? Maybe you're making the meals, you're doing things for them, all kinds of stuff. Uh, But it's all to the neglect of your own family, right? Like, your marriage is falling apart, like you're always arguing, your kids are just neglected, they're running around, they don't even eat half the time, you know, and they're crazy people. Like, it doesn't matter how hard you try to serve your neighbors, they're going to think you're crazy, right? Because they're going to look at your home and think, you guys are nuts. Like, I don't want anything to do with that. Like, I think you're trying to escape your family. That's probably why you're spending so much time with us. They're going to think you're nuts. what is a winsome like opportunity to serve your neighbors well love your family first you tend to them first and then you love your neighbors. it's not either or it's not well you know we're just gonna have such a great family that they're gonna see and it's gonna be great and you know we don't even need to really focus on them because they'll just look at us and that'll be good No, no it's not that it's not either or it's both and right but we love the family first and then we tend to the needs of others paul put it like this in galatians Galatians 6.10, do good to all people, but especially those in the household of faith, right? Jesus said it like this. Hey, they're gonna know your mind by your love for one another, by how you love the family. And so, so we have an outward orientation, yes, absolutely, but we care for God's people. I wanna show you this another way. Girls, if y'all come on up for a second. Uh, they're gonna help me illustrate this, okay? Um, so as you come up on stage, if y'all can just form a circle and hold hands for me, OK? Right? And so when you form a circle and hold hands, this is what you typically expect, right, if you ask them to do that. And if I just kind of left them there for the rest of the the, the message, right, i just kind of talk for the next half hour, like, it would start to feel really awkward, right? Just kind of looking at each other, be really weird. Like, this feels strange. Um, Sometimes when we talk about loving each other and caring for the family, uh, this, is what, this is what our minds go to. This inward orientation of, okay, we just got to gotta love the church family really well. I, I want to submit to you, there's another way to be connected. There's another way to be united. There's another way to love and serve each other. Girls, can you all form a circle and hold hands in a different way? Now, I believe this is the picture of the church, right? They're united. They're together. But they're, they're focused outward. Now, listen, if Ashlyn sees, okay, Bree's having a hard time, she can still understand, right? She can still kind of turn. She can help. She can see if Chelsea's struggling, right? She's there. She can even hear if Harper back there. She can turn around. She, we still can love each other. But what are we doing? We're equipping each other to make disciples as we go, or as we live, work, study, and play. Yes, there's one way to serve each other where we're just inward focused and always focusing on each other. There's another way to be united, and it's when we're outward focused but still united together in how we love and how we serve. Thank you, girls. Great job. So I believe what Esther is modeling for us is an outward orientation but still a care for God's people. Because what what has she done up to this point? Well, she's talked to Mordecai. I mean, they're they're linked up in this together. Mordecai's talked with her. And then who does she invite into? Hey, invite all the Jewish people to be fasting. Are they united? Yes, absolutely. But they're united in a way in which they're going to approach the Persian Empire. It's an outward orientation, but still a together that takes place. And so, at this point in the story, well... The king hears all this from Esther. He's furious. He's upset. He's going out in the garden. Haman, he's terrified. And at that moment, you're wondering, OK, what's going to happen to Haman? Right? How is this going to end for him? It's probably not good. And it's really surprising, because you can make the case that at the time, Haman was the second most powerful man in the world at that time. You know, He was the lead advisor to the king. He's the guy who basically made the edict for the Jewish people to die. Uh, and so he's, he's a powerful man. But what's going to happen to Haman? And you know what? He's terrified. He's terrified because of the choices he's made. It's all coming back on him now. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that moment when the consequences and the choices that you've made, your sin, it all comes back on you? And you realize, I mean, I've just been found out right? Oh man, I'm guilty of this. I know it. I'd I'd sure love to point the finger at somebody else. I'd sure love to blame some kind of circumstance or something in life, but I know that it's because of the decisions that I made that now I'm dealing with this. Now I'm dealing with this pain and this, this hurt and these consequences. You get yourself into a situation and you wish there was some finger to point somewhere else, but you know it's on you. This is where Haman is. And you can always see it on his face right between the lines as we're reading that he sinned against the king and he knows the wrath of the king is coming the anger of the king is burning against him he's going to face the consequence from the king and the consequence for haman in this ironic twist in history is that he will be hung on the gallows that he had prepared for mordecai now if you would have told Haman just two days earlier that all this would be taking place, he would have laughed at you, right? I mean, just two days earlier, he would have thought, are you kidding me? My life is great. I'm famous. I've got the ear to the king. The queen is throwing a party just for me and the king. Like when, when people walk into my presence, they have to bow down. I get to set orders i got all these friends these great advisors my wife and i we have conversations it's good like you look at Haman's life two days earlier and he's he's got a great life some of you might have a great life right great family great friends a job you enjoy you look at you say, everything is going well listen if you're not prepared to die you ought to be terrified Because the wrath of the king is coming for you. He's a king with perfect wrath who will announce his judgment on your life. Things were going well for Haman. And then one day, it all flips upside down. And understand, the same thing can happen for us. Things can go well for us. Everything can be fine until we enter the presence of the king if we're not prepared for death because his wrath will burn against you. Either the wrath of the king will be abated through your punishment, or the wrath of the king will be abated through the punishment of his own son, Jesus. So the king, he pronounces the judgment on Haman. And they they cover Haman's face in shame and disgrace. And it's really this incredible scene because when you look at Haman through the, the story of Esther, you know who Haman really wants to be like and who he really wants to see the whole time? king. He always wants to be in the presence of the king, to see the king. When he thinks that he's the one who's going to be honored in the kingdom, he wants to be treated like the king. Give me the robe of the king, the horse of the king, the nobleman of the king. Parade me around like a king. I want to be like the king. He wants to see the king. And now in this twist, his face is covered in shame and disgrace. He cannot see his king. You know, in many ways, it's kind of a glorious longing that Haman has to see The face of the king his problem was he had the wrong king he had the wrong king and so the question then comes for us who is our king the reformers as they lived they they lived with this phrase living quorum Deo it means living in the face of God right they wanted everything they do because they knew that one day they would see him face to face is how we live now is I want it to be in the face of God. I want to live as if I could see Him right here looking approvingly on how I live. And that really becomes the question for us, right? Whose approval do you long for? Whose friendship do you crave? Whose presence do you want? And maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's kids, maybe it's friends, maybe it's yourself, maybe it's God, But that will tell you who is your king. Let me tell you, the the primary job of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Okay, that's the primary job, really, is for a pastor to come alongside the saints and to equip you to live the Christian life, to, to equip you to make disciples as you go. Now, in order to do that, you have to start with the end in mind. Because if you're not prepared to die, then you're not prepared to live. If you don't live in the face of the king, if you don't realize that your wrath is either on you or it's been taken care of through Jesus Christ, then you're not ready to live. And as we look at Haman and just his story, and we see how death comes to this man, we're reminded that death comes to every man because we all have sinned. And so death comes for us all. And once you are ready to die, only then are you really ready to live. And so be ready to die. As morbid as that might sound, but Haman, here, he is hung on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. And as we read this, at this point in the story, got some, you know, some of us, we just kind of like that, right? Kind of like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. He prepared these so high, I mean, these monstrous gallows. He prepares them for Mordecai. He wants to exterminate all the Jews, and he's the one who gets it. He ends up on, the, on his own gallows, and we read that, and you know what? We might kind of like it just a little bit. You know why we like it? It's because it's a whole lot easier to see the sin in others than it is to see the sin in ourselves. It's a whole lot easier to recognize the justice that that person's sin deserves than it is to recognize the justice that our sin deserves. But listen, as believers, we don't cheer the consequences of sin. We cheer Christ and Christ alone. This is a right orientation. We cheer Christ and Christ alone. Why? Because we all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin, all of it, correct justice, is judgment, eternal, death. There's a great king whose wrath burned against us. And with that king, he went into the garden. But he didn't go to the garden just in wrath. He went to the garden in obedience. And he prayed. And then in obedience, he was led away from the garden, not to come and execute his wrath against us, but to become sin for us, to identify himself with sinful humanity, not his friends, but his enemies. Now, can you imagine, I mean, this is an incredible story, the story of Queen Esther, but can you imagine just for a moment that if King Xerxes, he came back in from the garden, went into the palace, and he sees Haman lunging at his wife, Queen Esther, and then he pronounces the death sentence on Haman, and Queen Esther stands up and says, King, I love you, but you know what? I forgive Haman. And instead of executing him, will you execute me? And he can live the life identified with God's people, that I should be allowed to live. You understand, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us, is that our sin deserved death, and Jesus became sin for us. See, in a way, we're all like Haman, and we either die for our sin, or Jesus dies for it. Either the wrath of the king is abated through our punishment, or it's abated through the punishment of himself. It is the most ironic twist in all of human history that a perfect Savior would become sin for us and would bear our sin upon the cross, not simply for his friends, but for his enemies, so that we could be adopted into his family. See, Haman died on his own gallows. And if you don't know Christ, you will too. But if you know Jesus then Jesus Christ died on ours. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, for your control over the circumstances of life. And God, we thank you that you would humble yourself and become sin for us, taking the justice that we deserved on the cross and placing it on your Son. God, we, we ask that we would, uh, we would be a people who are identified with you and your family, that we would, we would love one another well, that we would love the family of God well, and that we would not be some secret agent Christians, God, but we would, we would be sent under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ as we are. God, help us to represent you well this week. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.